you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, last week we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. You may recall that. And we've kind of entered into a new portion of, of Scripture. Now Paul said he's, he's actually kind of finally getting to the point of the book after three chapters. And I said you could really summarize this portion of Scripture as pleasing God through holy living. Pleasing God through holy living. And in the text we looked at last week, in verse 3, it actually spoke of holiness and sexual purity. Holiness regarding sexual purity. And I had talked a little bit about it last week, but I have said that you know a topic like that needs more treatment, and so I would come back the next week and, and deal with that. And so that is the case for today. We're going to look at it with a, a little more depth. And let me just say, this is not an easy thing to talk about for many reasons, for many reasons. I'll get into that as, as we go. But even as I was considering that, I was reminded of this book that was written some years back, and it uh, kind of addresses the fact that churches don't talk about these kinds of things as they ought to, that the church has really shied away from dealing with difficult topics. The name of this book is actually called The Juvenilization of American Christianity. And it goes back to the 30s and traces kind of a shift in church culture where they really wanted to start attracting the youth more. And so they, they redesigned everything to be more appealing to the youth. And now, fast forward, we're seeing the ramifications of that throughout the church. And you're just going to be hard-pressed to find a church that deals with uncomfortable topics, challenging topics. And so we're an adult church, amen? We're going to deal with challenging and adult topics. That's just the way that it is. It would be easy to gloss over these things and keep moving and focus on the easy, happy stuff, but we cannot do that. I am bound by God and conscience to speak to these issues because they're critical. They are critical. They're important to God, they're important to us, and the Bible has much to say about it. And so I address these things in obedience to God. I need you to know that. But I also address these things because I love you, because God has put me here as the pastor of this church, and it is my joy to shepherd you as I teach the Word of God, and I want God's best for you. I want God's best for us all. Amen? And so, having said that, we're going to dive into this issue today. So last week, we talked about sanctification. Sanctification, it's a fancy Bible word. And uh, there's really two aspects to this. There is, it's who we are in Christ, we've been sanctified. It is our status, it's our position. We are in Him, and we are loved of the Father, and it, it doesn't change. You know, it's all good. It's a great place to be. It's a sweet place to be. We are holy. We are set apart. But there is an aspect to it where we grow, where we progress. And so you're not going to find that word used in that sense very frequently in the New Testament, but you do find it in the text that we're looking at today, which we looked at last week. And regarding this idea of progression of moving forward in holiness and godliness kind of in a, in a linear fashion. One of my professors, he was talking about this very thing, progressive sanctification, and he asked, he asked a series of questions. 
he said he loved to ask these questions. He'd try to tie us into a pretzel. You know, do you become a better person over time? Don't answer these questions. I just want you to think about this. Do we become better people over time? That's one of the questions that, that he would ask. Do we, you know, do we, do we become better? I always struggle with that because I never thought I was a good person in the first place, you know, and so to say that we become better, just something about that made me cringe a little bit, you know. Um, he would say, does sin become easier to resist as we grow, as we move on in this life? Will sin become easier to resist? He asked, can we reach a point in our Christian maturity where we are less vulnerable to sin, less vulnerable to fall to temptation? These are serious questions that we need to, to take an honest look at. And he would contend that, no, we don't become better. Sin doesn't become easier to resist. We don't reach a point where we are no longer vulnerable to fall. And that may be a depressing thing. I mean, we certainly grow God is, God is, that's His objective, is to make us more to the image of Christ. But when we start thinking that we should be able to, to somehow see and gauge our growth in some linear fashion, or that we should be becoming better people, or we should be becoming less sinful, and, and easy, it's easier to, to fight sin, I think that sets us up for a real place of discouragement and disillusionment, right? And so we have to be honest with ourselves. As long as we are in this life, it will be a struggle, it will be a struggle until the day that we die, which is, I think, in part, supposed to encourage us for the next life. We look for the day, we long for the day when there will be no sin. There will be no more battle. We will be in glory with our Savior and worshiping Him in all purity and glory. And so to, to illustrate this, he told a story of a pastor some years back in uh, Southern California, he had been in this church faithfully serving, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 years. And uh, as he got older, as he got in his 60s, I believe it was, he fell. He fell to sexual sin. And he lost everything. And he went through a process of restoration. He got his family back, you know, just went through the church discipline the whole nine. And then he did it again. He fell again. And so that was really startling to me. And that, the, that was the point that the professor was making. You know, ask that guy, after all of those years of walking with the Lord in faithful service, what happened, you know. And there were a number of things that really stood out to me about this regarding sexual sin. One, it's just so very destructive. This guy lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his ministry, and he lost his testimony. Not once, but twice. It really reminds me of just how powerful this is, the, the draw, the pull, to, to fall into this. This guy cashed everything in, cashed everything in for that, for that momentary pleasure. You know, what else it reveals to me is you can be a mature Christian and still fall. You can be a mature Christian who has been walking with the Lord faithfully for 40, 50, 60 years, serving the Lord faithfully, and still fall to sexual sin. And one of the things that, the, uh, that my professor said was, you know, and the reality is this guy wasn't especially attractive, you know. 
at this point in his life, and yet it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And I, there's a pastor, Raul Reese, maybe somebody, it's funnier if you can envision the accent of this guy, but he tells his pastors, he said, look, regarding sexual temptation, he says, all you guys, you're ugly, okay? But that doesn't matter. Satan will hook you up. And so, and that's true. That's true. Don't, you know, the reality is, is that we're all susceptible to this. It really does not matter. Satan wants to take us out, and, and he's more than capable of, of tempting us to that end. And so, at any age or stage in life, we can be susceptible to this. We can. And it is deadly dangerous. You know, I, I can go on. This is not an isolated issue. We know this. My wife is taking a class right now, or just finished this class on um, teaching the Bible in women's ministry, and she had a book that was a compilation of many essays from different pastors on the craft of teaching. And what was kind of striking was how many of those pastors have since fallen. They've since fallen, and they are discredited. You, you almost don't even want to read their excerpts because they've lost all credibility and that's a, that's a disturbing trend. Um, you look at just the last couple of years alone, and the amount of people who have fallen, turned away from the faith, fallen into sexual sin, it's, it's been rampant. You know? And I, I don't generally like to name names, but you know, Ravi Zacharias, that's, a, that's a, a major one. I mean, who in here has not loved and looked up to Ravi Zacharias, and then he passes away and all this stuff comes out that he's been living a double life for decades? And nobody had any clue. And so I just say that to say that this is very real. And you know, for pastors, it's very public. They're in the spotlight. So when they fall, everybody knows it. But it's not just happening to pastors. It's happening all around us. All around us. The struggle is real and the danger is real. This is a universal issue we're talking about here. Around the world and in every age, there is the struggle, the battle for sexual purity and the disaster that ensues when people give in to sexual immorality. You know, it's interesting, something that my wife pointed out to me was that, you know, the Bible talks about how the law is written on the hearts of men. Like, there's something in us intuitively. We know God's truth. It's true. And there are certain principles that are just seared into our conscience. And one of those is sexual purity, because every religion in the world has something to say about it. So either they uphold it as something that's important and necessary, or they pervert it, but it is somewhere in some shape or form found universally. And so that, that just goes to show you what a big issue this is and how relevant it is to all people everywhere and at all times. And it's relevant to everybody in this room. It's relevant for all of us, men and women at every age and stage of life, it is a very relevant issue. You consider how pervasive it is in the culture. It's being forced on us always through everything that we are seeing, all the images that we see on a daily, through social media, on TV, on billboards. I mean, you name it, it's there. It's inescapable, isn't it? It's inescapable. And so let me just say this. Uh, if you're here listening to me or watching at home, we can all say that you have either at one point struggled with this, you are currently struggling with this, or you will be struggling with this. There's just no escaping that. That's just the way that it is. And if we're honest, I would say 
pretty much every one of us in this room have struggled or fallen in some shape or form in this regard at some point in our lives. And if you're one of the few who haven't, then count yourself tremendously blessed. Tremendously blessed. Because honestly, most everybody has struggled or fallen in some way with this. And so I, I, I want my tone to be one of grace and mercy because I realize that this is just not easy and that it's a struggle for everybody. And so I just want you to know that if you have fallen in this area, there is grace and mercy with the Lord. There is forgiveness. There is cleansing. There is restoration. And God doesn't waste anything. And if you are struggling in this area, there is grace and there is mercy in the Lord. You can be forgiven. There is hope. You can be strengthened. You can't overcome. And so know that. You know, we need to understand God's design. God does have a design, and God does have a standard. We need to know what that is. We need to know why we must fight as if our lives depend upon it, because really they do. Our lives depend upon fighting this matter faithfully. We need to know and trust that God has something better for His people. Do you know that? Do you know that God has something better? God has something far better for His people than, than living a life in bondage to sexual immorality. I also want to say that this is not some legalistic attempt to earn God's favor. Oftentimes people look at Christianity like that. Christianity is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. I have to get my life right so that I can be pleasing to God. And so I have to stop doing all these things and start doing these other things. Then I can come to God. It doesn't work that way. And that is not what I am attempting to communicate here today. What I am talking about flows from the heart and life of a person who knows God personally, intimately. If you have been born again, if you have the Spirit of God in you, if you have a, a regenerate heart, then these are the kinds of things that we should be striving towards. You know, when God gives us a new heart, He gives us new desires. And in that are uh, our desires to obey Him, to obey His commands. We delight in God's law because we know God's law is good for us. And God gives us the means to obey His law, to obey His Word. Okay, so before I even get into the, the study itself, I want to make that crystal clear. This, this is relevant to the church. This is God's standard for God's people. And so if you don't know God, that's the first place you got to start because these things are going to be impossible if you don't know God, if you don't have the Spirit of God in you. And you're aiming for something that isn't even the goal if you haven't first met Christ, if you haven't first come to the saving knowledge of Him. Does this make sense? So don't misunderstand me here. I'm not giving you steps to live a moral-like life, a moralistic life, if you don't even know the Savior. Because that's bad. Because you can be a moralistic person who is still separated from God and accountable for your sin and ultimately headed straight for hell. And just be straight with you, okay? And so that's where we start here. You must know Christ. You must know Him savingly and be born again and have the Spirit of God. And if you do that, then you're going to have all the tools, all, the, all that is necessary to be able to walk in this and live according to God's standard. Amen? So with that, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. 
Let me just say, first off, point number one, holiness and sexual morality is not optional for us. It's not an option. It's not just a suggestion from God to His people. It is a command. So 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So anytime you hear this is the will of God, it should cause us to lean forward. It should cause us to listen up. Because the Bible is telling us this is what God wants for you. This is God's desire for you. This is God's command for us. So this is a priority to God. This is a big deal to God. And it comes with full authority. Full authority. This is His will. And what is it? It's sanctification. Sanctification. And we talked about what sanctification is last week. It is to be different. It is to be set apart. It is to be peculiar people. It is to be distinct, right? And so we talked about there's the world, the world that is opposed to God, the world that is different from God in every way, and we were, we were swimming in that stream. We were of the world, but God called us out of that, and now we're to look different than the world. We're to talk differently. We're to, to think differently. We're to respond to difficulties differently. That's what it means to be sanctified outwardly, progressively, practically. And that is what Paul says is God's will for the church. It is God's will that we be different, that we be unique, that we be distinct. And then he gives a very particular area in which we are to be distinct. And he said that it is in regard to sexual immorality. We are to be different in this way. And we all know, as I've already said, what the world says about these issues, right? And the, really the value of the world is if it feels good, do it, right? And that is the way that I think many of us have lived our lives for years. But Paul says, God has something different for you. God has something better. God has called you out of the world, and God wants you to, to look and act and think differently in these matters. And so he says, you are to abstain from sexual immorality. Now this word, it's pornea in the Greek, and that is, uh, it's kind of a generic word. It's, it's very broad, and it means sex outside of marriage, it means adultery, pornography, homosexuality, entertaining lustful thoughts, and I would even say emotional affairs. Emotional affairs, when you're just getting too close to someone else outside of marriage and you're having some sort of a, an emotional connection there that should not be happening. Okay, and so kind of it's a, it's a broad term. It's a broad term. And we need to know it's all-encompassing because we like to find loopholes, don't we? This is bad, but maybe this is not. And so just know that it is broad. And God gives very specific boundaries and guidelines for His desire for us in these areas. It's anything that goes outside of the bounds of God's design, particularly His design for marriage. And this really is a matter of the heart, folks. It is a matter of the heart because we can look good outwardly. You know, we can be doing everything right on the outside, but inwardly we're guilty. We're guilty because we're thinking about these things, we're entertaining these things, lusting in our hearts. And so it has to be both. It has to start inwardly. We have to be sincere before the Lord in our hearts and our thinking, and then we also have to guard ourselves with our behavior, and we have to stay pure outwardly as well. 
bottom line, God expects more for His people. Christian, God expects more from you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. There it is. God's holy people. He says, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And so here he says, not even a hint of sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, because these things are not proper for God's people. And then he says, even in our speech, no foolish, obscene talk, no coarse joking, not even that. Not even that. And, and oftentimes we fall into that, right? Maybe we're not doing these things. Maybe we're not struggling with these things in our hearts, yet we're we're entertained by it. We make jokes about it. And we're in places where people are joking about it. And then we laugh at it. You know, that was a struggle for me at a place I used to work, you know, uh, just trying to draw that line. I didn't want to be some holier-than-thou smug guy. But there does come a point when people are talking about these kinds of things and joking and being crude, and then they, they want you to laugh at it, you know. And, and the Bible says we're not to do that. We're not to join in, in with that. There's not to be even a hint of it in our behavior or in our speech, in our thinking. And so that's the standard. That's the standard in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, you know what Paul is appealing to here? Who we are in Christ. And not just who we are, but whose we are. He says, look, you belong to God. You have been purchased with a price. So this flows forth from our identity. And i got to tell you, in my life, I have had to appeal to that. When, when there was temptation, I had to say, you know what? I'm a man of God, okay? God is with me. I have the Spirit of God, and that is not my life anymore. I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not going to live that way. And that's really where Paul goes. He says, look, you have been bought with a price. You are God's people. And what is this price that we have been bought with? The precious blood of Jesus. We are blood-bought saints. We have been redeemed. You know what that means? We have been purchased. We have been bought. The Bible says that we were slaves to sin, that we were lost and, and dead living in the world, but Christ purchased us out of the world. So we shouldn't live like that anymore, right? We should look different because we have been bought out of that life and we have been purchased at a very high price. Jesus paid a very high price to redeem us from that life. So why would we want to live like that any longer? And so that is our identity. We belong to God, Paul says. We are His. We are God's special and chosen people. And we are to do God's will. That is the authority in our lives now. We belong to God. He says that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we're not to profane God's temple. 
The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And so for that reason, we are to live holy lives. And that's just it. Because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can live holy lives. Isn't that great? God gives us the capacity to live holy lives by putting His Holy Spirit in us. You with me? Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? I know this is some deep, heavy stuff. I wish I could be more funny, but this just is not really a funny message, you know? It just kind of is what it is. It's, it's serious. So let's talk a little bit more practically about why this is so important, you know? It would be great if we could just do these things because the Bible says so, or because we know what our identity is, or because we know what is pleasing to God. Wouldn't it be great if we could just be obedient for that reason? But you know what? There are other reasons, very important reasons. For one thing, if you give yourself to sexual immorality, it will sabotage your future, particularly your future marriage. You know, if you're, if you're dating, courting, and you cross lines in this regard, it can and almost certainly will lead to trust and respect issues down the line. You know, I tell guys, you want to be respected in your marriage, you want your wife to, to follow your lead, you got to earn that. And that starts well before you get married. You have to give her a reason to trust and respect your leadership and to want to follow you. And if you're willing to compromise your, your wife to be her purity before the Lord, if you're willing to do that, that is going to create trust and respect issues to be sure. And that will, that will be a long-lasting thing. It will follow for years. And so this is so very serious. In the early stages of any relationship, you've got to fight for this because it will have long-lasting repercussions if you don't. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? Because that, that's, that's very serious stuff right there. That is, believe me when I tell you, that is the truth. You know, it, it destroys existing families and, and marriages. When people fall into sexual sin, it will destroy your life as you know it, just like that. Everything as you know it is over. It's over. It compromises and it weakens the believer. You know, people that, are, people that have secret sin, hidden sin, people that are struggling in sexual sin, they're going to be tempted to isolate. They're going to be tempted to isolate because that's what sin does. It causes us to, to want to move away from the light, to want to move away from fellowship. And then what happens when we isolate? We grow weaker and weaker and things get colder and our hearts become more uh, hardened. And that is all bad. That is all bad. It really is a character issue. You know, we want to be sincere. Who we, pro who we proclaim to be in a group, we want to be that behind the scenes, right? When nobody is looking, when nobody knows what we're up to, what's really going on, can we be consistent? Can we have character in this issue? And here's the thing. <clears throat> God exposes these things. Know that. If you belong to God... God loves you. God has something better for you, and God will chasten His children. And that's a serious warning. God does chasten those whom He loves. And so that which is done in secret, it will be brought to the light eventually. And so this is very serious stuff. And, you know, it brings reproach on Christ, and it 
brings devastation into the body of Christ. And that's the context here, really. Paul says, in the church, in the church, this is God's desire. And this is, I've seen so much damage done in the church uh, because of sexual immorality. I mean, I could just tell you stories that would boggle the mind. And so it brings shame to the name of Christ when these kinds of things happen. It devastates churches, ministries, pastors, families, all across the board. And so we know how serious this is. We know how serious this is. We understand the consequences. We recognize God's command for us in these matters. And so with that, I want to consider God's design. What is it? What is God's design in these areas? If we have already considered God's command in these areas, what God expects for us, and we've kind of looked at the consequences of going against God's design in this, what exactly is God's design? That's good. All right. Yeah, marriage. All right. There you go. And so let's look at that. Let's look at that. So God instituted marriage as the confines for sexual relationship. Hebrews 13.4. It says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. And so the sanctity of marriage. It is a God-given gift to humanity, and that is the confines for, for sexual relationship. And that's it. Period. And this has been God's design from the beginning. From the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read some, there's a lot of verses in this today. I'm just trying to give you guys a, a biblical kind of theology here of all of these things, but this is very relevant and practical to us. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now this in verse 23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's key right there. One flesh. This is the idea. God said it's not good for man to be alone, and so I'm going to give him a helper. The word is essential counterpart. They will come together and complete one another. And the two will come together, and they shall be one flesh. Now, this is very significant. Their lives are going to be joined, merged in every way. That means no separate bank accounts. That means that everything is one. They are now one person. There's nothing hidden one from the other. They are united in every way, emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally, practically, in every sense, the two become one. And that is to be inseparably by God's design. This is a very special, a very sacred thing that God did when He created the institution of marriage. And Jesus reaffirmed this in the New Testament. And so it had full authority in the Old Testament. It has full authority in the New Testament. Jesus speaking in Matthew 19, verse 4, he, he said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's significant. Male 
and female. That's God's design. One man, one woman. And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. There it is. And the two shall become what? One flesh. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that is God's design, and that is Jesus reaffirming it. It's holy, it's sacred. It is not to be, it's not to be desecrated or defiled. And then Paul, in Ephesians, he takes up the same verse, these same ideas, and then he goes even further with it and gives us the spiritual uh, picture behind this, which is huge. It reflects our union with Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So there's this illustration that Paul is giving here of a husband and a wife of Christ and the church, the two coming together, Christ seeking to wash the church, to sanctify the church, and that same illustration is used towards the husband and the wife by Paul. Paul goes on in verse 28 to say, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. So here Paul is using this same language. Just as Adam said, flesh of my flesh, you know, bone of my bone, Paul is now saying the same is true of Christ and His church. We are one. And then this, verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So Paul just took this thing to a whole other level. This is true. This is God-ordained. It's special and it's sacred. But it reflects something so much bigger than any of us could have ever known. Paul says, this is a mystery that I'm revealing to you. It's a truth that has been hidden in previous ages, but now you know it. And marriage is a picture of Christ and His church a sacred union that takes place between Christ and His body. That is what marriage reflects, and so that is why marriage is to be hallowed. It is to be sacred. The sanctity of it is to be protected and preserved. It is not to be defiled or desecrated because it is a picture of something so gloriously holy. Does that make sense? You guys still with me? Okay. And so it's important. It's important to God. It's important to us. It's special. It's sacred. And so God does not want us desecrating something that He has designed that is so incredibly beautiful, so incredibly glorious. That's God's command. That's God's standard. And you know what 1 John says? It says that the commandments of the Lord are not a burden. They're good. God's commandments are good. They are for our best. Do you know and trust that God has your best interest at heart? Do you know that? Do you believe that? 
See, sometimes we think of God's commands as trying to hold us back, not wanting us to really enjoy life. First John says, never. God's commands are good. They are what are best for us. They're not arbitrary or given to frustrate and withhold good things from us. But the problem is, oftentimes that's exactly what we think, or at the very least, that's how we act. That's how we behave. And we see this played out, man, we see this played out graphically in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now, we know that God gave a command to Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful, multiply. He put them in the garden to work the garden, to tend it. And he said, there's one thing you cannot do. You cannot eat of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one command. And so everything's going good for a time. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, says, Now the serpent, and we know that is Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? So right out the gate, he's questioning God. Did God actually, are you sure you heard that right? I'm not sure that's what he said. Are you sure that's what he said? That's what's happening here. So the woman replied to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And so now he's challenging God's word. That's not going to happen. I know God said that, but that's not going to happen. Don't worry. And then he goes on, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so now he's questioning the motives, the character of God. Did God actually say that? I'm not sure He did. Well, you know what? He may have said it, but it's not actually true. And furthermore, it's because God's not good. And God knows that when you eat it, you're going to be like Him, and He doesn't want that. So He's just trying to stop you from experiencing all the good things in life. Man, is that not a carbon copy of the way that we think and the way that we respond? That's amazing to me. And so, verse 6, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. So it was appealing. It was enticing. It looked good. It looked good to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. So what did she do? She gave in. She disobeyed. And that's what it is, folks. We're enticed. It looks good. We're drawn to it. We forget God, we doubt God, we question God, and then we go for what's right in front of us. Then the fall. And then in verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the present presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. See, this is the deception. It's all so very appealing, and the enemy is cunning and crafty, and he entices them into this and promises them great things. But then what happens when they go for it, when they fall? Immediately, shame. Shame. That's what comes into the picture here. Shame, they attempt to cover themselves. The first man-made religion right here, 
to cover themselves in the sight of God, and then they hide themselves from God. And that's exactly what happens. That's the progression. The temptation comes, the thought to challenge, question, forget God, and then you fall, you go right into it, and then comes shame, trying to cover and hide yourself altogether from God. And so that's nothing new. This has been the tactic of the enemy from the very beginning, and it continues on to this day. Those were the same kinds of tactics that Satan tried to use against Jesus in the wilderness temptations in Matthew chapter 4. I mean, to the T. And that exists in our day. So we have to remember, folks, God has given us a command. God expects it. It is for our good. God has given us a standard, a clear-cut design that is glorious. It is for His honor. It's something to be hallowed. It's something to be protected and preserved at all cost. And we can see the, the deception. We can see how the temptation comes in and how we fall for that. So with that, next point, we've got to fight for this. I don't know if you know that or not, I mean, but you've got to fight to the death. You remember that illustration I told some time back about the guy that was found dead in his bed by an anaconda? Because, or a python, because his, his wife said that he, that was his pet, and he, he would lay in bed and, and play with the snake, and then it got him, killed him, you know? That's how we are with temptation. We play with it like it's not a deadly animal that's going to crush us and kill us. And then, and then there was another guy who found himself being attacked by a python, and he, he bit that thing and punched it and beat it with a stick and killed it. See, that's the way we got to treat this thing, right? That's it, you know. We don't play with it. We don't toy with it. We have to fight to the death, and that is the way that it is. And so 1 Corinthians 10:12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And this is in the context of sexual immorality. What worries me the most is when I talk to people about this and they are very self-assured. Oh, I've, I'm good. I've got this. We're going to be okay. I'm like, no, you don't. And you're not going to be okay. That is the scariest thing to me when I see that kind of attitude because people, I just don't think, understand the force that this is, you know. I've often said that when people find themselves in a situation where, where they have begun to, to be you're kissing and that, you know, you start getting the blood pressure boiling. I mean, there's about, there's really one thing that can stop you at that point, and that's getting ran over by a car. <laughs> and so you can't, you can't get in that situation. You can't. And you got to be, this is deadly serious. And so Paul says, look, if you think you've got this, you better be on the lookout. You better be on guard because you're going to fall. Proverbs 6, 27 and 28 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? This is in the context of sexual immorality. You think you can play? You think you can play around with this? And that's what people do. They want to get as close to the fire as they can. Is that not what we do? You know, what, what is permissible? You know, what can I get away with? Just how close to this can I get? That's the way that, that we think and function. And 
The writer there says, look, you think you can take fire on your lap and not get burned? You think you can walk on hot coals and not have your feet get blistered? Let us not be so foolish as to think that we've got this, that we can just flirt with this, that we can toy with it. We can't. We cannot. And so then Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. That word circumspectly, it's, it's basically like walking on a tightrope, uh, walking with, with focus and caution because there's a lot on the line. And so we're not living our lives in terror. You know, we're not petrified, but we're serious. We're cautious. We're on guard. We're walking with wisdom. And you have to. You have to in this, in this matter. Romans 13, uh, verses 13 says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And there it is, folks. Do not put yourself in a situation to fall. Do not provide for yourself an opportunity to fall. That's what it means to make no provision for the flesh. Look, if you've got to get rid of your phone, get rid of it. If there is something in your life that is tempting you, get rid of it. Remove yourself from it. Set yourself up to succeed. If you need accountability in your life, if you need to bring something to the light, do it. I'm not telling you got to come up here and tell the whole congregation, but find one person, two people that are very trustworthy and bring them into the light. You know, put yourself in a place where you're accountable. Set yourself up to be guarded and to be cautious. We have to do these things. So often, that, that's really it. You know, I, I remember a guy, he struggled in this area at U-Turn for Christ. He went off into second phase. Young guy, and, you know, he, uh, he went to work at this little place called Pal, Pals. It's just kind of right there. And it's a tiny little drive through You can't even go in. And you go up one side and back down the other, and it's just slam full of workers. And you drive, and there's like 15 like, high school girls in there. And it's like the one guy. I'm like, bro, don't take that job. I'm like, what are you thinking about? And, but you know what? He was so desperate to get a job so that he could start you know, stacking money and getting his life on track. I'm like, bro, this is not going to end well for you. It ain't worth it, man. Hold off on getting this, a job. Get a different job. But that's what we do. We, you know, he threw himself right into it. And, you know, what do you think is going to happen? And so we have, that, that was not walking circumspectly. That was not walking with wisdom. That was making provision for the flesh and its lusts. Paul tells Timothy, he says, flee youthful lusts. That, that's amazing to me because Timothy was not really a young guy. At least, you know, I mean, he's in his 40s. Um, at this point, but Paul considered him a youth, and he said, flee youthful lusts, which tells me that maybe Timothy struggled with youthful lusts, and Paul had to tell him, hey, watch out for that, man. Flee. Flee. And, and we see that very played out very graphically in Genesis 39. Joseph, we know the story. Joseph was in Potiphar's house. He was the, the head steward. Everything was under his control in the house, but Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. You know, she was looking at him kind of funny. And she wanted, she wanted to seduce and entice Joseph. But you know what Joseph said? 
how can I do this to my God? How can I do such a wicked thing? He, had, he was a man of character and moral standard there before the Lord. And so he wasn't willing to go there. She continued. She tried to, to, to entice him day by day, it says. And that's the way temptation is. It's relentless. Does anybody in here know that? Temptation is relentless. And such was the case. And so it says that she grabbed him and he fled out of there. That's what it says. He fled and ran outside. That's the answer sometimes. You just got to run. And I'm not kidding around when I tell you that. If you're in a situation where you got to run, run, okay? We want to walk circumspectly. We want to be careful. We want to be accountable. We want to have precaution and safety guards in place. But if you find yourself in that situation, run. Don't be embarrassed to run, okay? That's what the Bible says. Flee. Paul said, Timothy, flee. I'm sure he was thinking of Joseph when he wrote that because that's exactly what Joseph did. So I kind of want to close with this last point. I mean, there's so much more I could have said, but, you know, um, for, for what, I, what I have, you know, we talked about the commandment, really just the danger that exists in this area for Christians universally, the commandment that God has given us, the standard that God has given us, the design that He has given us, that we have to fight for this. we got to fight for this because we know what is on the line. We have a responsibility in this matter. We have to, we have to be ready to, to, to fight for this. And then lastly, we got to repent. There needs to be repentance because there is forgiveness. You know, there have, there, you know, as I said, many of us either have or are or will be right in the throes of this. And so what I want you to know is that there is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is healing with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, none of which will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. There's that word. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. You know, such were we. Such were we. But we've been washed. We've been cleansed. We've been forgiven in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Amen? We serve a forgiving God. We serve a loving God, a gracious God. And has he not demonstrated that? How could God have possibly demonstrated more clearly to us that he is a God who forgives? Because he made the way of forgiveness by sending his son Jesus Christ to die for that sin. So whether it's looking at pornography, entertaining lustful thoughts, engaging in adultery, sex outside of marriage, any, anything and everything from one degree to the end, Christ died for that. Christ died for that. God sent His Son to, to live the life that we cannot live. He never committed any sin. He never committed sexual immorality ever. And yet He died for that sin. He died a sinner's death so that our sins could be forgiven at the cross. And so that sin, that regret, that shame, all of that, that was on Christ. He bore that on His shoulders there on the tree, on that rugged cross for us. 
And so you can be forgiven of that, and we can be cleansed. Our conscience can be cleansed, and we can keep moving forward in Jesus' name with full pardon, full forgiveness, full assurance. Doesn't that sound great? That's what God has for us. That is the gospel. That is the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. A great sin bearer, he came into the world to take our sin and to pay for our sins so that we would be clean. No more shame. There's nothing to hide. There's no need to try to hide from God. Forgiven, cleansed, made new in Christ. And though the battle is on and the battle is hot, 1 John chapter 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. So, you know, the goal is to not sin in these areas. But the reality is we know if we're honest, we're going to. We're going to fall short. We're going to struggle. And if you do... You have an advocate with the Father. You have Jesus Christ who goes to the Father. He intercedes on your behalf. He Himself is the satisfaction of God's standard on our behalf. And then 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have that hope. We have that promise. If you are carrying guilt, if you are carrying shame, if you are carrying regret, you can confess your sin before God and you will be forgiven. If you are struggling in this area, confess it to God. Confess it to God and confess it to a brother or sister. There is forgiveness. There is cleansing. And God will give you the victory. I'm confident of this. God wants you to have a fruitful life in Him. God loves you. God is working in you. And though in this life there will always be struggle and difficulty and hardship... I believe that God would have us walk victoriously in this. He gave us the command. He gave us the command. And He gave us the means to do it. Amen? And it's because of love. Because we love God. Because we want to honor God. Because we want God's best for our lives. And we know that what God has for us is God's best. And so with that, may we fight the fight. May we fight the fight. May we walk uprightly. May we be pure before God in this matter, in our minds, in our hearts, in our relationships, in this church, in our community, in our place of work, wherever we are. May we be people of integrity. No compromise. No compromise in this area. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your commands. They're good. We thank you for the truth of your word. And this is not easy stuff. And I know that there are people in this room right now who are struggling deeply in these areas. And so I pray for them, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen them in their inner man, that you would wash them, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that they would confess their sins to you, Lord God, and that they would seek to walk Uh, obediently in this matter because it really is a matter of life and death. Father, I pray for people who the temptation is to come. Lord, I pray that they would be on guard. I pray that they would take it that seriously and that when that time comes, when the day of adversity comes, they'll stand and they will overcome, that they will have victory, that they will be obedient. 
I pray for the people who have fallen in this area. Lord, may they know Your forgiveness. May they receive Your cleansing and Your healing. May they know that they are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed. And Lord, may they look to the future with great joy and hope to serve You and walk with You in holiness. Father, I pray for this church. God, would You pour out Your blessing upon us. May we be a people who love Your truth and reflect righteousness and holiness and purity in our lives and everywhere else. We thank You, Father God, and we praise You in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.